0: Yeah, we all get tired of the anxiety of this world, Um, and we long in our heart for the day when we know freedom from sin, and we'll be like Christ, and we can dwell in eternal glory with him, free from all the things that the earth brings upon us. Uh, Sometimes I pray, Lord, I know you're coming back, so please do so, and the sooner the better. Uh, (laughs) Uh, that's praying in accordance with the will of purpose. Uh, second God has what may be called the will of desire. The will of desire. Now, rather than an all-encompassing plan like the will of purpose, uh, we're narrowing down to a heart's desire. We're like we're like that too. We have an overall plan for our lives, and we may even plot it out, think about it. And then it narrows down to those personal desires that you have within that plan. And not everything that happens in your life is a personal desire, but somehow you try to fit it into the plan so you stay on track. And so it is with God. He has a will of desire. But God's will of desire is not always done. In other words, there are things that God wills that just don't seem to happen. They're his desires, but men reject them. Uh, for example, Jesus desired that Jerusalem be saved. What did he say in Luke thirteen thirty four? Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those has sent her sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. And in John five forty, he said, You're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Uh, you all know that Peter tells us that God does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. First uh, Timothy 2.4 says that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's the heart's desire of God. And yet, what did Jesus say would take place on the final judgment day? Matthew 7:22 and 23. <clears throat> Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So scripture tells us that he desires all to be saved, but not all will be. That's that's the mystery of how you have an absolutely sovereign God, and yet you have human volition. No one can explain how that comes together, and yet that is what the Bible teaches. So God has a will of desire, and yet he does not decree that his desires will be fulfilled. There's a third kind of will that God has, which is his will of command. The will of command. This is specifically related to believers, uh, because only they have the capacity to obey because they possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. (coughs) It wouldn't do any good at all for God to command unbelievers to do his will because they have no capacity. The will of command is the desire of God that we who are his children obey him completely and immediately with a willing heart. So when I say in my prayer, your will be done, what am I saying? I'm saying, God, fulfill your purpose in the world. Bring it to consummation. Take every struggle and trial in my life, every pain, anxiety, sorrow, sickness, death, somehow reverse those things that are a result of sin and fit them into your eternal plan by your infinite mind. That's his will of purpose. When I say your will be done, I'm also saying, God, there are people in my life and around this globe who don't know you. I pray that somehow the gospel will penetrate their hearts. That's his will of desire. And third, when I pray your will be done, I'm saying, Lord, I pray that I would be just as obedient as the angels in heaven, immediately, completely, fervently. Remember, we said that there are three ways to bring in the kingdom. First one was through conversion, when Christ comes to reign in someone's heart. The second is when the believer lives according to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He experiences the kingdom in his life. And the third one is when Christ returns at his second coming and establishes his kingdom here on earth. I see the three same three things here. His will of desire embraces the conversion of those who come to him in saving faith. His will of obedience embraces the idea of commitment in the believer's life. And his will of purpose embraces the ultimate end, the coming again and the setting up of an eternal kingdom. Listen to the magnificent words of Psalm 119, verses 97 to 101. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. That's a heart of obedience there. So as we pray your will be done, we're embracing conversion, commitment, and his coming again. You know, it's hard to pray this way, though. It's hard to be preoccupied with God in your prayers, and there's one basic reason. Because the major sin of the human heart is what? Self or pride. Yeah. That was the first sin. The archangel Lucifer says five times in Isaiah 14, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Um, it was, that was the fall of Lucifer. For the first time in the history of God, there were two wills. Um, and it has multiplied from there. Today there's at least 7 billion of them on the earth. Uh, but only, still only one in heaven. Uh, but only one of those wills is righteous. Uh, Every other one is corrupt, and that doesn't even include all the fallen angelic hosts who became Satan's demons. But there's only one will that matters, and that will is done in heaven, and it needs to be done on earth. But pride always stands in the way. You say, well, how can I deal with that? How can I get pride out of the way? You go to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." You see, until you and I lay our lives on the altar as living sacrifices and our will is dead, God's will can't be revealed. You say, well, what's a living sacrifice? Well, it's very different than what you might think. I know you recall how Abraham took Isaac, strapped wood on his back, and marched him up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And all the way up the mountain, Abraham must have been saying to himself, this is very strange, God. You told me to go up here and slay my son on an altar, and yet my son is the fulfillment of your covenant. You told me to lay him down on the altar and kill him. That doesn't make any sense, but I'll do it. That case is one of the greatest illustrations of a living sacrifice in the world because Abraham went all the way up there, put Isaac down, strapped him down, lifted up the knife and was ready to plunge it in his heart. If he had done that, Isaac would have been a dead sacrifice. But Abraham would have been a living one. Why? Because Abraham would have crucified all of his own dreams, all of his own hopes, all of his own ambitions, all of his own goals, all of his own desires. He would have literally died to himself in obedience to God. You see, the question is not can you die for Christ? The question is can you live selflessly for Him? That's the question. If you can, then you can know his good will. But the thing that always stands in the way of praying for God's will is our own will. Uh, When we learn to pray like we should pray, in conformity with his will, we will find that we will change dramatically. Prayer, then, is a sanctifying grace. It changes us. We don't pray to manipulate God. We don't pray to get God to do what we want. We don't pray with incantations and public demonstration and vain repetition to just try to put on a show. We go into God's presence. We want to hallow his name and bring his kingdom and fulfill his will because in doing so, we enter into conformity with his blessed son. I guess I could summarize it all and say this. Prayer is a means of progressive sanctification. One Bible teacher put it this way. The end of prayer is not so much tangible answers as a deepening life of dependency. Uh, As we pray, we become more and more dependent upon God so that however he should choose to answer us, we're satisfied because we know it is his perfect will for us being done here on Earth. And so then that is God's plan, that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then that brings us finally to verse 11. So we finished verse 10 finally. Before we move to verse 11, any comments or questions so far? The more I talk, the more drainage I get <laughs> because of the vibration of your sinuses. <laughs> okay. It ends after yeah. right. Okay. Let's look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. We come here to what? Perhaps seems like the simplest of all the entreaties in this prayer. And we might wonder whether we need to give much thought to it at all. Um, I mean, it would seem rather irrelevant to us. Uh, After all, when was the last time we, any of us actually prayed, Lord, I plead with you to provide a meal for me. Um, That seems like a valid prayer request for a believer in Ethiopia or Sudan But I dare say that we Americans are more likely to pray, Lord, please prevent me from eating another meal. Um, Teach me some self-discipline, Lord. I must lose weight. Um, So this entreaty does seem a little remote to us, doesn't it? But that kind of thinking only illustrates our lack of understanding of its marvelous truth. Do you realize how much food we have in America? At the present time it is estimated that the United States will produce over 425 million tons of grain this year. That's 850 billion pounds. That's 2,575 pounds per person, uh, or more than one and a quarter tons of grain for every single American. In addition, We will produce over 27 billion pounds of beef, that's 82 pounds per person, and over 44 billion pounds of chicken, 133 pounds per person. Now, you might think, well, we export so much that we really don't have that much left. Yes, this year we will export 85 million tons of grain to the rest of the world, which still leaves us with one ton of grain for every single American alive today. Um, So we have food beyond our ability to even conceive. So to say, give us this day our daily bread, is a little remote. Uh, I'm the one who does most of the grocery shopping in our family. I took over the responsibility a few years ago when Marcia's arthritis in her knees was so bad she couldn't walk long enough to do it. So I took over the job. The only thing is she had her knees replaced, and they're in better shape now than mine are. But, yeah, but somehow, I'm doing, somehow I'm still doing the grocery shopping. So I know, I know exactly how much we have in a typical grocery store. And there are 42,500 grocery stores in the United States. And So that is replicated every time you're in a grocery store and you look around. Just remember, that's replicated 42,500 times in our country. So I must admit that until I studied this, this request didn't seem all that important to me as a major prayer request. So what does it mean to us? Or should I just teach this lesson and say, well, you're going to have to use your imagination a bit and pretend you don't have any food and that you're desperate and starving, and and then this will have some degree of meaning. No, that's not a valid approach, because this pattern of prayer extends beyond the first century and beyond those who are impoverished to speak to all believers in every age and in every situation. So let's look at this and see what God has to say to us in this model of prayer. Now, back when we started this study... <clears throat> we said that there are two parts to this prayer. The first part deals with God's glory. The second part deals with man's need. In the first part, there are three requests. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And all three of those focus on God and his glory. In the second part, there are three requests focusing on man and his needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And do not lead us into temptation, temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is the supreme priority here. And until we put God in the proper perspective, we cannot properly pray about our own needs. And let me add that even when we get to the second part of the prayer, it doesn't set God aside. Even though God is primarily exalted in the first half, the second half exalts him also and does not set him aside. After all, He is the one who gives us our daily bread, who forgives our debts, and doesn't lead us into temptation. In other words, it's as if the second half brings God into the realm of human life and existence. It is not that we butter up God with the first three points about hallowing his name and praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done here on earth, and then we jump in with all the things that we want in the second half. No, we're saying, God, glorify yourself in our daily provision. Glorify yourself in our constant forgiveness. Glorify yourself in the leading and directing of your spirit in our lives. So it's not a setting aside of God in any sense. Prayer is not buttering up God and then demanding certain things from him. I get really aggravated with those false teachers who are telling people that they have a right to demand God give them whatever they desire. And it's always the health and wealth. Just, Just demand it. Uh, After all, they say if you're one of his children, if you have enough faith, your heavenly father is required to give it to you. That's hogwash. God isn't obligated to give you anything, but he provides for his children in accordance with his sovereign purposes and will for each of them. Listen, if God only gave me what I had enough faith to believe that he would give me, I would be destitute, both financially and spiritually. But spiritually, he's given me exceedingly abundantly far beyond all that I can ever ask or think in Jesus Christ. And financially, he's provided far more than I ever expected or deserved to receive. Demanding stuff from God isn't the point of prayer at all. We are to give God the privilege and opportunity of revealing his glory through the meeting of the deepest of human needs. And it's because we want God to be put on display that not because we make demands of him for our benefit. If our prayer becomes self-centered and selfish in any way, <clears throat> it ceases to be the kind of prayer our Lord said should be characteristic of his kingdom. When we approach God in prayer to get something for us, <clears throat> for us rather than to allow him to glorify his name, then if we don't get what we want, we begin to question God. Whereas if we simply allow God the right to make the choice that he wills to reveal his glory, then no matter what he does, we will then say, so be it for your glory. That's, if that's what you choose as the avenue for your majesty, so be it. But when we become self-centered in our prayers, when we question God's wisdom, that's a serious sin. We're pragmatists in our society. We're vending machine operators. We stick a certain amount of money in and we want a product to pop out for us. And consequently, we often treat prayer in the same way. Uh, One Bible teacher of years gone by once said, in some congregations, the gospel has been diminished to the mere art of self-fulfillment. Egocentricity is all that's left. Uh, What he's saying is that prayers become Nothing more than an ego-centered, self-fulfilling, self-indulging exercise to try to elicit from God what we demand. That's not right. These petitions here, though directed at our essential needs, are ways in which God's glory comes to earth and makes itself manifest And so J.I. Packer says, the prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but it is a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. So with that perspective, then, let's look at this petition. Give us this day our daily bread. This is a basic need of man. It's a broad term. It's a prayer for our physical needs to be supplied. And as we look at this entreaty, we'll see five areas that are included. The provision, the provider, the petition, the people, and the period of time. Let's begin with the provision. What is the provision That is needed. Bread. Right? Mm -hmm. But it isn't talking about bread in terms of a loaf of bread. or It's not just talking about that. Uh, Give us this day. Our daily bread is talking about the provision of our physical needs. God has to begin with providing our physical needs. Because without doing that, we will die. It ought to thrill us to know... That the God who created the hundred billion galaxies in our universe with all of their hundreds of billions of stars, who is beyond time, who sustains all that is, whether the smallest atom or the largest star, who created man from the dust of the earth, that same God cares that our physical needs are met. That same God is concerned with providing you a meal to eat and clothes to wear. (coughs) And he even sets certain conditions for them. And we'll get to that as we go along in our study. But bread is a term that represents all of the physical area. John Stott notes that Martin Luther taught that everything necessary for the preservation of this life is bread, including food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, and peace, end quote. He saw all of the elements of life which support our physical existence as necessities. But bread does not include the luxuries of life. I don't think that anyone can use this verse to say that we should ask, could even ask God for the luxuries of life. Uh, what he chooses to give us by way of luxury is entirely his grace. <coughs> but he promises to give us the necessities. Listen to the words of Agur in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. One of those Bible writers that you probably never heard his name before. A-G-U-R, Agur. He wrote Proverbs 30. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, Lord, give me what I need, but not too much or too little. I think that's the heart of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew six 11. It isn't self-seeking, you know, give me more and more and more and more. It's simply saying, Lord, give me what I need. Um, now, you might say, but Bruce, in our society, We don't have any needs, so we don't even need to pray this. Yes, we do. Although we are not people who are desperately crying to God because we're starving or lack the basic necessity of life, uh, this petition is for us because the essence of the prayer is really an affirmation that all of our provision comes from God. It's saying, Lord, I want to, to let you know that I realize that you are the source of my life, my food, my shelter, my clothing. It's that constant affirmation. It's very similar to the idea that I constantly pray for the Lord to forgive my sins and cleanse my heart of sin. Now, I could say, well, I, I'm not going to do that because He already forgave all my sin, past, present, and future, so there's really no need to keep on asking for something I don't need. Wrong. <coughs> yes, He's forgiven my sin. But he also said to keep on confessing it. If I say to the Lord, Lord, I need your guidance and direction so that, about what to do in this certain matter. I mean, doesn't the Bible already say that he will lead me and guide me and direct my path? So why bother to pray that way? Because he wants me to affirm that I recognize his leadership and direction in my life. And if I pray, Lord, please hear my prayer and answer. He's already said in his word that he's promised to hear and answer the prayers of his children, and and so I know that he will and always has. And yes, that's true, but he wants me to affirm that confidence because that exalts him. So then, I may not have to pray, Lord, I don't have any food for my family, and I don't know where it's going to come from, so please give me something to eat. But I can and should always pray, Lord, everything I have and all that I can share with others comes from your good and gracious hand. And so for us, in our incredibly abundant American culture, it is an affirmation that God is the source of everything. Uh, Yes, there are some Americans who live in such poverty that they have very little to eat and don't have adequate clothing and shelter to protect their physical lives, but they are a small minority in our culture. We are to do all we can to meet their needs and we can pray these words in this sense, give us this day our daily bread that we need to be able to help those who don't have enough. You see we can be the resource that God uses to meet the needs of the truly needy. So the majority of us don't pray these words from the viewpoint of someone who is starving but rather from the viewpoint of gratitude and thankfulness for all he has provided, even to the point of exceeding our needs. It's a precious thing to know that our God cares about our physical needs. And although we may not be on the edge of hunger, we are always to be thankful because all of it comes from him. So that is the provision that we need, bread. Second, we come to the provider who is God. Now, I would just want to talk about that for a minute because I think it's important. We tend to fall into the trap of thinking that we provide everything for ourselves. We say, you know, I worked hard to make a living. I earned my wages. I provide for my family. And while there is a sense in which that is true, We often fail to recognize that everything we have, including the ability to work hard and even the desire and drive to provide for our family, comes from God. So we need to pray that way. We need to thank him that he's given us food to eat, clothes to wear, shelter over our head, a bed to rest in, and the physical strength to honor the Lord with our work. God cares about the little things, the things that we never think about. He's involved in every detail. He knows when a sparrow falls. He knows the number of hairs on your head. For, for us men, he, he knows how many less you have today than you did when you were younger. And for you ladies, he knows the real color of your hair. He, he, he knows and determines every detail of every insect alive on this earth. All ten quintillion of them. He, he knows and controls and orders every detail of everything in this world for us. Our life, breath, health, possessions, talents, opportunities, all originate from resources that God has created and made available to us. <coughs> and so my daily bread, the necessities of physical life, are all from God. And so part of my prayer should ever and always be give us this day our daily bread. Father, we recognize you as the giver of all physical necessity. Now, if we just think about this from just the food standpoint, we need only go back to Genesis 1 and see how God has given us food. In Genesis 1, verses 29 and 30. Mm. <coughs> We're told, then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I've given every green plant for food and it was so. You know, if God had wanted to, he could have made us be satisfied to eat like a dog. I mean a dog is perfectly happy eating the same food every single day. You just fill up the bowl with some kind of dog food that your dog likes, (coughs) and it will eat that food every single day and be happy about it. And cats are the same way. In fact, all the animals are that way. But God designed us to enjoy eating a variety of things And then he gave us a wide variety to pick from. Just as a side note. Don't try to use the passage we just read in Genesis. To say that God wants you to be a vegetarian or a vegan. Just because he didn't mention meat in those verses. Doesn't mean he didn't approve of eating meat. In Leviticus 11. He laid out for Moses. Which animals were the clean animals that the Israelites were allowed to eat. And that's. 10 he gave Peter a vision of all kinds of animals on a sheet coming down from heaven he told Peter get up kill and eat and there are many more Uh, in fact we know that Jesus ate meat and fish uh, because he observed the Passover at which lamb was eaten and we're told (coughs) that uh, after his resurrection he ate some broiled fish as a way to prove to the disciples it was truly him who had arisen and there are many other places speak of our being allowed to eat meat. In fact, Romans 14.2 says that the person who has strong faith eats anything they wish, but he who is weak in faith eats vegetables only. So I can make a strong case why it's perfectly fine to eat meat. Uh, God has given us animals for food. He is a God of great and marvelous variety, and that is seen in how He made us to enjoy a wide variety of foods and then provided them for us. But there are still people who come along And they want to draw lines and tell you that you can't have this or you can't have that. I'm not talking about your doctor telling you that certain things like too much sugar or fat or processed foods in your diet isn't good for you. Or if you're like my grandson who has celiac disease that you can't eat gluten or it'll eventually kill you. I'm I'm talking about people who come along and tell you that it's more spiritual to eat a certain diet or that God forbids you to eat certain foods. Um, Let's look over it. First uh, Timothy four for a minute. Flip over to First Timothy four, <clears throat> and let's see what Paul <clears throat> how Paul specifically warned Timothy about those kinds of people. Here he says that guys who were led by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and have a seared conscience will come along and tell you that marriage is forbidden and that you must abstain from certain foods, which Paul says in verse 3, God is created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And he goes on to say in verse 4 that everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. So all of God's marvelous created food of every type is fine to eat. There are certain things I choose not to eat because I personally don't care for them, but it would be fine for me to do so if I chose to eat them. Now listen to verse 5. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. What does that mean? How are all these foods sanctified by the word of God? That's easy. Remember how back in creation, God declared everything he created to be good and in In the passage we read in Genesis 29 and 30, he said it was all for us to eat. So it was declared good by the Word of God at the very beginning. So how does our prayer sanctify our food? What did verse 3 say? When it is received with gratitude. That's thanksgiving for our prayer, for our food. So the Word of God sanctifies it, and you sanctify it when you thank God for it. Uh, So do you really thank God for your food. Listen, most of us wouldn't say a meal without praying first. Most of them are quick things that are often rather unconscious and indifferent and we just rattle them off to make sure the duty's done. But are you really thankful? I hope so. I know I've learned to consciously think about my prayer of thanks before a meal. Even if my words aren't that much different from the previous meal or from 10 or 20 meals before that, I truly focus on the meaning of what I say because the Lord convicted me that I was just droning through my prayer at mealtime without really meaning it. Uh, I hope the Spirit will convict you of that also. We need to truly see God as the provider of everything. We're to have an attitude of thanks in our heart when we pray at mealtime. So when you're saying thanks to God for your petition, for your provision on a daily basis, to meet your physical need, you're fulfilling the spirit of give us this day our daily bread. Recognizing that God is the provider of all that gives him the glory which he deserves. So that's the provision and the provider. Next, we'll come to the petition. And then we'll stop we'll stop at the end of this. It'll be a little early, but we'll stop. <clears throat> because the next one's a big point. So... But the petition, petition is expressed in the word give. Uh, This is the heart of the petition, because it recognizes our need. Even though God may have already provided it, we ask him for it in recognition of his past and present provision, as well as trust for his future provision. So what are we asking for? Jesus says our daily bread. Those are the necessities of life, whether large or small, those are the things that are necessary for life and health and well-being of ourselves and our families. As Kent Hughes says, we are to pray for bread, not dessert. <laughs> so, uh, this is also an invitation to come to God with requests that others may consider to be small. One of the precious realities of our Christian life is that God cares for the simple, ordinary, day-to-day things of life. Uh, Jesus taught us that even the supposedly trivial matters are important to God. He blessed children who the disciples considered to be an annoyance. He showed care and concern for lepers, for the lame, the mentally ill. Uh, God cares whether his people are warm, well-fed, and well-housed. But notice that God wants us to build a mutuality between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ through this prayer. He commands us to pray give us, not give me. Uh, Every time we pray this prayer from our heart we are affirming our solidarity with our fellow believers. We're also making an implicit commitment to help provide bread for needy friends. This prayer is a petition that stretches us. It broadens out our thinking to include others. We not only depend on God for practical provision, but we also commit ourselves to be part of God's answer for others in need. So the only thing that can make our Jesus instruction and our petitions valid is the promise of God that he will give us what we need. But those promises are only for a certain group. And that is his people, the people. And that's where, even though we're early, I want to stop because the next point is rather lengthy, and I don't want to break it up. So let me put a marker here. Okay, any comments or questions? About our daily bread. Okay. Well, hit the